Chapter Fifteen, Part Two of the Rainbow. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Rainbow by D. H. Lawrence. Chapter Fifteen, Part Two. Ursula sat abstracted over her microscope in suspense. Her soul was busy, infinitely busy, in the new world. In the new world, Skrebensky was waiting for her. He would be waiting for her. She could not go yet, because her soul was engaged. Soon she would go. A stillness, like passing away, took hold of her. Far off, down the corridors, she heard the gong booming five o'clock. She must go. Yet she sat still. The other students were pushing back their stools and putting their microscopes away. Everything broke into turmoil. She saw, through the window, students going down the steps, with books under their arms, talking, all talking. A great craving to depart came upon her. She wanted also to be gone. She was in dread of the material world, and in dread of her own transfiguration. She wanted to run to meet Skrebensky, the new life, the reality. Very rapidly she wiped her slides and put them back, cleared her place at the bench, active, active, active. She wanted to run to meet Skrebensky, hasten, hasten. She did not know what she was to meet, but it would be a new beginning. She must hurry. She flitted down the corridor on swift feet, her razor and notebooks and pencil in one hand, her pinafore over her arm. Her face was lifted and tense with eagerness. He might not be there. Issuing from the corridor, she saw him at once. She knew him at once. Yet he was so strange. He stood with the curious, self-effacing diffidence which so frightened her in well-bred young men whom she knew. He stood as if he wished to be unseen. He was very well dressed. She would not admit to herself the chill, like a sunshine of frost, that came over her. This was he, the key, the nucleus to the new world. He saw her coming swiftly across the hall, a slim girl in a white flannel blouse and dark skirt, with some of the abstraction and gleam of the unknown upon her, and he started, excited. He was very nervous. Other students were loitering about the hall. She laughed with a blind, dazzled face as she gave him her hand. He, too, could not perceive her. In a moment she was gone, to get her outdoor things. Then again, as when she had been at school, they walked out into the town to tea, and they went to the same tea-shop. She knew a great difference in him. The kinship was there, the old kinship, but he had belonged to a different world from hers. It was as if they had cried a state of truce between him and her, and in this truce they had met. She knew vaguely in the first minute that they were enemies come together in a truce. Every movement and word of his was alien to her being. Yet still she loved the fine texture of his face, of his skin. He was rather browner, physically stronger. He was a man now. She thought his manliness made the strangeness in him. When he was only a youth, fluid, he was nearer to her. She thought a man must inevitably set into this strange separateness, cold otherness of being. He talked, but not to her. She tried to speak to him, but she could not reach him. He seemed so balanced and sure. He made such a confident presence. 
He was a great rider, so there was about him some of a horseman's sureness and habitual definiteness of decision, also some of the horseman's animal darkness. Yet his soul was only the more wavering, vague. He seemed made up of a set of habitual actions and decisions. The vulnerable, variable quick of the man was inaccessible. She knew nothing of it. She could only feel the dark, heavy fixity of his animal desire. This dumb desire on his part had brought him to her? She was puzzled, hurt by some hopeless fixity in him that terrified her with a cold feeling of despair. What did he want? His desires were so underground. Why did he not admit himself? What did he want? He wanted something that should be nameless. She shrank in fear. Yet she flashed with excitement. In his dark, subterranean male soul, he was kneeling before her, darkly exposing himself. She quivered. The dark flame ran over her. He was waiting at her feet. He was helpless, at her mercy. She could take or reject. If she rejected him, something would die in him. For him it was life or death, and yet all must be kept so dark, the consciousness must admit nothing. "'How long,' she said, "'are you staying in England?' "'I am not sure, but not later than July, I believe.' Then they were both silent. He was here in England for six months. They had a space of six months between them. He waited. The same iron rigidity, as if the world were made of steel, possessed her again. It was no use turning with flesh and blood to this arrangement of forged metal. Quickly her imagination adjusted itself to the situation. "'Have you an appointment in India?' she asked. "'Yes. I have just a six months' leave.' "'Will you like being out there?' "'I think so.' There's a good deal of social life, and plenty going on, hunting, polo, and always a good horse, and plenty of work, any amount of work. He was always side-tracking, always side-tracking his own soul. She could see him so well out there in India, one of the governing class, superimposed upon an old civilization, lord and master of a clumsier civilization than his own. It was his choice. He would become again an aristocrat, invested with authority and responsibility, having a great helpless populace beneath him. One of the ruling class, his whole being would be given over to the fulfilling and the executing of the better idea of the state. And in India, there would be real work to do. The country did need the civilization which he himself represented. It did need his roads and bridges, and the enlightenment of which he was part. He would go to India, but that was not her road. Yet she loved him, the body of him, whatever his decisions might be. He seemed to want something of her. He was waiting for her to decide of him. It had been decided in her long ago when he had kissed her first. He was her lover. Though good and evil should cease, her will never relaxed, though her heart and soul must be imprisoned and silenced. He waited upon her, and she accepted him, for he had come back to her. A glow came into his face, into his fine, smooth skin. His eyes, gold-gray, glowed intimately to her. He burned up. He caught fire and became splendid, royal, something like a tiger. She caught his brilliant, burnished glamour. Her heart and her soul were shut away fast down below, hidden. 
She was free of them. She was to have her satisfaction. She became proud and erect like a flower, putting itself forth in its proper strength. His warmth invigorated her. His beauty of form, which seemed to glow out in contrast with the rest of people, made her proud. It was like deference to her, and made her feel as if she represented before him all the grace and flower of humanity. She was no mere Ursula Brangwen. She was woman. She was the whole of woman in the human order, all-containing, universal. How should she be limited to individuality? She was exhilarated. She did not want to go away from him. She had her place by him. Who should take her away? They came out of the café. "'Is there anything you would like to do?' he said. "'Is there anything we can do?' It was a dark, windy night in March. "'There is nothing to do,' she said. Which was the answer he wanted. "'Let us walk, then. Where shall we walk?' he asked. "'Shall we go to the river?' she suggested, timidly. In a moment they were on the tram, going down to Trent Bridge. She was so glad. The thought of walking in the dark, far-reaching water-meadows beside the full river transported her. Dark water flowing in silence through the big, restless night made her feel wild. They crossed the bridge, descended, and went away from the lights— in an instant, in the darkness, he took her hand, and they went in silence, with subtle feet treading the darkness. The town fumed away on their left. There were strange lights and sounds. The wind rushed against the trees and under the bridge. They walked close together, powerful in unison. He drew her very close, held her with a subtle, stealthy, powerful passion— as if they had a secret agreement which held good in the profound darkness. The profound darkness was their universe. "'It is like it was before,' she said. Yet it was not in the least as it was before. Nevertheless, his heart was perfectly in accord with her. They thought one thought. "'I knew I should come back,' he said at length. She quivered. "'Did you always love me?' she asked. The directness of the question overcame him, submerged him for a moment. The darkness travelled massively along. "'I had to come back to you,' he said, as if hypnotized. "'You were always at the back of everything.' She was silent with triumph, like fate. "'I loved you,' she said, always. The dark flame leaped up in him. He must give her himself. He must give her the very foundations of himself.' He drew her very close, and they went on in silence. She started violently, hearing voices. They were near a stile across the dark meadows. "'It's only lovers,' he said to her softly. She looked to see the dark figures against the fence, wondering that the darkness was inhabited. "'Only lovers will walk here to-night,' he said. Then, in a low, vibrating voice, he told her about Africa, the strange darkness— the strange blood fear. "'I am not afraid of the darkness in England,' he said. "'It is soft and natural to me. It is my medium, especially when you are here. But in Africa it seems massive and fluid with terror. Not fear of anything, just fear. One breathes it like the smell of blood. The blacks know it. They worship it. Really, the darkness. One almost likes it, the fear, something sensual.' 
She thrilled again to him. He was to her a voice out of the darkness. He talked to her all the while in low tones about Africa, conveying something strange and sensual to her. The negro, with his loose, soft passion that could envelop one like a bath. Gradually he transferred to her the hot, fecund darkness that possessed his own blood. He was strangely secret. The whole world must be abolished. He maddened her with his soft, cajoling, vibrating tones. He wanted her to answer, to understand. A turgid, teeming night, heavy with fecundity, in which every molecule of matter grew big with increase, secretly urgent with fecund desire, seemed to come to pass. She quivered, taut and vibrating, almost pained, and gradually he ceased telling her of Africa. There came a silence, whilst they walked the darkness beside the massive river. Her limbs were rich and tense. She felt they must be vibrating with a low, profound vibration. She could scarcely walk. The deep vibration of the darkness could only be felt, not heard. Suddenly, as they walked, she turned to him and held him fast, as if she were turned to steel. "'Do you love me?' she cried in anguish. "'Yes,' he said, in a curious, lapping voice unlike himself. "'Yes, I love you.' He seemed like the living darkness upon her. She was in the embrace of the strong darkness. He held her enclosed, soft, unutterably soft, and with the unrelaxing softness of fate, the relentless softness of fecundity. She quivered and quivered like a tense thing that has struck, but he held her all the time, soft, unending, like darkness closed upon her, omnipresent as the night. He kissed her, and she quivered as if she were being destroyed, shattered. The lighted vessel vibrated and broke in her soul. The light fell, struggled, and went dark. She was all dark, willless, having only the receptive will. He kissed her with his soft, enveloping kisses, and she responded to them completely. Her mind, her soul gone out. Darkness cleaving to darkness, she hung close to him, pressed herself into soft flow of his kiss, pressed herself down, down to the source and core of his kiss, herself covered and enveloped in the warm, fecund flow of his kiss that travelled over her, flowed over her, covered her, flowed over the last fibre of her, so they were one stream, one dark fecundity, and she clung at the core of him with her lips holding open the very bottommost source of him. So they stood in the utter dark kiss that triumphed over them both, subjected them, knitted them into one fecund nucleus of the fluid darkness. It was bliss. It was the nucleolating of the fecund darkness. Once the vessel had vibrated till it was shattered, the light of consciousness gone, then the darkness reigned, and the unutterable satisfaction. They stood enjoying the unmitigated kiss, taking it, giving to it endlessly, and still it was not exhausted. Their veins fluttered, their blood ran together as one stream. Till gradually a sleep, a heaviness settled on them, a drowse, and out of the drowse a small light of consciousness woke up. Ursula became aware of the night around her, the water lapping and running full just near, the trees roaring and soughing in gusts of wind. She kept near to him, in contact with him, 
but she became ever more and more herself, and she knew she must go to catch her train, but she did not want to draw away from contact with him. At length they roused and set out. No longer they existed in the unblemished darkness. There was the glitter of a bridge, the twinkle of lights across the river, the big flare of the town in front and on their right. But still, dark and soft and incontestable, their bodies walked untouched by the lights, darkness supreme and arrogant. "'The stupid lights,' Ursula said to herself in her dark sensual arrogance, "'the stupid, artificial, exaggerated town, fuming its lights. It does not exist, really. It rests upon the unlimited darkness like a gleam of coloured oil on dark water. But what is it? Nothing, just nothing.' In the tram, in the train, she felt the same. The lights, the civic uniform, was a trick played. The people, as they moved or sat, were only dummies exposed. She could see, beneath their pale wooden pretense of composure and civic purposefulness, the dark stream that contained them all. They were like little paper ships in their motion. But in reality, each one was a dark, blind, eager wave, urging blindly forward— dark with the same homogeneous desire. And all their talk and all their behavior was sham. They were dressed-up creatures. She was reminded of the invisible man, who was a piece of darkness made visible only by his clothes. During the next weeks, all the time she went about in the same dark richness, her eyes dilated and shining like the eyes of a wild animal, a curious half-smile, which seemed to be jibing at the civic pretense of all the human life about her. "'What are you, you pale citizens?' her face seemed to say, gleaming. "'You subdued beast in sheep's clothing? You primeval darkness falsified to a social mechanism?' She went about in the sensual subconsciousness all the time, mocking at the ready-made artificial daylight of the rest. "'They assume selves as they assume suits of clothing,' she said to herself, "'looking in mocking contempt at the stiffened, neutralized men. "'They think it better to be clerks or professors "'than to be the dark, fertile beings that exist in the potential darkness. "'What do you think you are?' her soul asked of the professor, "'as she sat opposite him in class. "'What do you think you are as you sit there in your gown and your spectacles? "'You are a lurking, blood-sniffing creature "'with eyes peering out of the jungle darkness, "'snuffing for your desires.' That is what you are, though nobody would believe it, and you would be the very last to allow it. Her soul mocked at all this pretense. Herself she kept on pretending. She dressed herself and made herself fine. She attended her lectures and scribbled her notes, but all in a mood of superficial mocking facility. She understood well enough their two-and-two-make-four tricks. She was as clever as they were, but care— did she care about their monkey tricks of knowledge or learning or civic deportment? She did not care in the least. There was Skrebensky. There was her dark, vital self. Outside the college, the outer darkness, Skrebensky was waiting. On the edge of the night he was attentive. Did he care? She was free as a leopard that sends up its raucous cry in the night. She had the potent, dark stream of her own blood— she had the glimmering core of fecundity. She had her mate, her complement, her sharer in fruition. So she had all, everything. 
Skrebensky was staying in Nottingham all the time. He, too, was free. He knew no one in this town. He had no civic self to maintain. He was free. Their trams and markets and theatres and public meetings were a shaken kaleidoscope to him. He watched as a lion or a tiger may lie with narrowed eyes watching the people pass before its cage, the kaleidoscopic unreality of people, or a leopard lie blinking, watching the incomprehensible feats of the keepers. He despised it all. It was all non-existent. Their good professors, their good clergymen, their good political speakers, their good earnest women, all the time he felt his soul was grinning, grinning at the sight of them. So many performing puppets, all wood and rag for the performance. He watched the citizen, a pillar of society, a model, saw the stiff goat's legs, which have become almost stiffened to wood, in the desire to make them puppet in their action. He saw the trousers formed to the puppet action, man's legs, but man's legs become rigid and deformed, ugly, mechanical. He was curiously happy being alone now. The glimmering grin was on his face. He had no longer any necessity to take part in the performing tricks of the rest. He had discovered the clue to himself. He had escaped from the show, like a wild beast escaped straight back into its jungle. Having a room in a quiet hotel, he hired a horse and rode out into the country, staying sometimes for the night in some village, and returning the next day. He felt rich and abundant in himself. Everything he did was a voluptuous pleasure to him, either to ride on horseback, or to walk, or to lie in the sun, or to drink in a public-house. He had no use for people, nor for words. He had an amused pleasure in everything— a great sense of voluptuous richness in himself, and of the fecundity of the universal night he inhabited. The puppet shapes of people, their wood-mechanical voices, he was remote from them. For there were always his meetings with Ursula. Very often she did not go to college in the afternoon, but walked with him instead. Or he took a motor-car or a dog-cart, and they drove into the country— leaving the car, and going away by themselves into the woods. He had not taken her yet. With subtle, instinctive economy, they went to the end of each kiss, each embrace, each pleasure in intimate contact, knowing subconsciously that the last was coming. It was to be their final entry into the source of creation. She took him home, and he stayed a weekend at Beldover with her family. She loved having him in the house. Strange how he seemed to come into the atmosphere of her family, with his laughing insidious grace. They all loved him. He was kin to them. His raillery, his warm, voluptuous, mocking presence, was meat and joy to the Brangwen household. For this house was always quivering with darkness. They put off their puppet form when they came home, to lie and drowse in the sun. There was a sense of freedom amongst them all, of the undercurrent of darkness among them all. Yet here at home Ursula resented it. It became distasteful to her, and she knew that if they understood the real relationship between her and Skrebensky, her parents, her father in particular, would go mad with rage. So subtly she seemed to be like any other girl who was more or less courted by a man, and she was like any other girl. But in her the antagonism to the social imposition was for the time complete and final. 
She waited every moment of the day for his next kiss. She admitted it to herself in shame and bliss. Almost consciously she waited. He waited, but until the time came, more unconsciously. When the time came that he should kiss her again, a prevention was an annihilation to him. He felt his flesh go gray. He was heavy with a corpse-like inanition. He did not exist if the time passed unfulfilled. He came to her finally in a superb consummation. It was very dark, and again a windy, heavy night. They had come down the lane towards Beldover, down to the valley. They were at the end of their kisses, and there was the silence between them. They stood as at the edge of a cliff, with a great darkness beneath. Coming out of the lane along the darkness, with the dark space spreading down to the wind, and the twinkling lights of the station below, the far-off windy chuff of a shunting train, the tiny clink-clink-clink of the wagons blown between the wind, the light of Beldover Edge twinkling upon the blackness of the hill opposite, the glow of the furnaces along the railway to the right, their steps began to falter. They would soon come out of the darkness into the lights. It was like turning back. It was unfulfillment. Two quivering, unwilling creatures, they lingered on the edge of the darkness, peering out at the lights and the machine glimmer beyond. They could not turn back to the world. They could not. So lingering along, they came to a great oak tree by the path. In all its budding mass it roared to the wind, and its trunk vibrated in every fibre, powerful, indomitable. "'We will sit down,' he said. And in the roaring circle under the tree that was almost invisible, yet whose powerful presence received them, they lay a moment looking at the twinkling lights on the darkness opposite, saw the sweeping brand of a train past the edge of their darkened field. Then he turned and kissed her, and she waited for him. The pain to her was the pain she wanted. The agony was the agony she wanted. She was caught up, entangled in the powerful vibration of the night. The man, what was he? A dark, powerful vibration that encompassed her. She passed away as on a dark wind, far, far away into the pristine darkness of paradise, into the original immortality. She entered the dark fields of immortality. When she rose, she felt strangely free, strong. She was not ashamed. Why should she be? He was walking beside her, the man who had been with her. She had taken him. They had been together. Whither they had gone, she did not know. But it was as if she had received another nature. She belonged to the eternal, changeless place into which they had leapt together. Her soul was sure and indifferent of the opinion of the world of artificial light. As they went up the steps of the footbridge over the railway, and met the train passengers, she felt herself belonging to another world. She walked past them immune, a whole darkness dividing her from them. When she went into the lighted dining-room at home, she was impervious to the lights and the eyes of her parents. Her everyday self was just the same. She merely had another stronger self that knew the darkness. This curious separate strength that existed in darkness and pride of night never forsook her. She had never been more herself. It could not occur to her that anybody, not even the young man of the world, Skrebensky, should have anything at all to do with her permanent self. As for her temporal social self, she let it look after itself. 
Her whole soul was implicated with Skrebensky, not the young man of the world, but the undifferentiated man he was. She was perfectly sure of herself, perfectly strong, stronger than all the world. The world was not strong. She was strong. The world existed only in a secondary sense. She existed supremely. She continued at college, in her ordinary routine, merely as a cover to her dark, powerful underlife. The fact of herself, and with her Skrebensky, was so powerful that she took rest in the other. She went to college in the morning and attended her classes, flowering and remote. She had lunch with him in his hotel. Every evening she spent with him, either in town, at his rooms, or in the country. She made the excuse at home of evening study for her degree, but she paid not the slightest attention to her study. They were both absolute and happy and calm. The fact of their own consummate being made everything else so entirely subordinate that they were free. The only thing they wanted, as the days went by, was more time to themselves. They wanted the time to be absolutely their own. The Easter vacation was approaching. They agreed to go right away. It would not matter if they did not come back. They were indifferent to the actual facts. "'I suppose we ought to get married,' he said, rather wistfully. It was so magnificently free and in a deeper world as it was. To make public their connection would be to put it in range with all the things which nullified him and from which he was, for the moment, entirely dissociated. If he married, he would have to assume his social self, and the thought of assuming his social self made him at once diffident and abstract. If she were his social wife, if she were part of that complication of dead reality, then what had his underlife to do with her? One's social wife was almost a material symbol, whereas now she was something more vivid to him than anything in conventional life could be. She gave the complete lie to all conventional life. He and she stood together, dark, fluid, infinitely potent, giving the living lie to the dead whole which contained them. He watched her pensive, puzzled face. "'I don't think I want to marry you,' she said, her brow clouded. It piqued him, rather. "'Why not?' he asked. "'Let's think about it afterwards, shall we?' she said. He was crossed, yet he loved her violently. "'You've got a muso, not a face,' he said. "'Have I?' she cried, her face lighting up like a pure flame. She thought she had escaped. Yet he returned. He was not satisfied. "'Why?' he asked. "'Why don't you want to marry me?' "'I don't want to be with other people,' she said. "'I want to be like this. "'I'll tell you if ever I want to marry you.' "'All right,' he said. "'He would rather the thing was left indefinite "'and that she took the responsibility. "'They talked of the Easter vacation. "'She thought only of complete enjoyment. "'They went to an hotel in Piccadilly. "'She was supposed to be his wife. "'They bought a wedding ring for a shilling "'from a shop in a poor quarter.' They had revoked altogether the ordinary mortal world. Their confidence was like a possession upon them. End of chapter 15, part 2